If you brought your Bibles, and I hope that you have, turn with me to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 5, I want to begin there this morning. I'll give you just a moment to find it. Romans chapter 5, I want to start in the 12th verse and, and read through the end of the chapter. Romans chapter 5, beginning at verse 12, says, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin. And so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression, who is the figure of him that was to come. But not as the offense, so also is the free gift. For if through the offense of one many be dead, much more the grace of God in the gift by grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ, has abounded unto many. And not as it was by one that sinned, so is the gift. For the judgment was by one to condemnation. But the free gift is of many, is of many offenses unto justification. For if by one man's offense death reigned by one, much more they have received, <clears throat> they which receive abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness shall reign in, the, in life by one, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as by the offense of one judgment came upon all men to condemnation, even so by the righteousness of one the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. But where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. That as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. Let us pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, we just humbly come before you one more time this morning, thanking you for the good day and for the many blessings, thanking you for the opportunity you've given us to gather here this morning to worship you in spirit and truth. Thanking you, Lord, for each one that's come our way, for the roof you put over our head, the nation that we live in, the freedom that we have to openly gather here without any kind of fear or persecution. Lord, we thank you for each one who has fought and who has uh, sacrificed and bled and died so that we can have that freedom. But we know that ultimately it's a gift from you, so we give you all the praise and all the glory. We thank you, Lord, for the many blessings that you poured out on us every breath that we draw. It's a gift from you. But we thank you most of all this morning for your son Jesus, Lord God, that you sent him and that you give him so that we might have life and have that life eternally and abundantly. God, we didn't deserve it. We're not worthy of it. And God, you already knew that, but you did it anyways. 
And so, God, even though we could never, we can't thank you enough. We could, not in a million years could we do enough to repay you. But, God, let us always be a people with praise and glory on our lips for you. Because you alone are worthy of it. And, Lord, I pray this morning, have your way and your will here in our midst. Moved by your sweet Holy Spirit. God, you know the hearts and minds of each one that is here. You know what we struggle with, what we're facing, what we're dealing with. You know the temptations that, that we face. You know where we stand, whether we're one of yours or not. God, there's nothing that is hidden from you. No surprises. So God, I'm praying here this morning. Lord, just move amongst your people here in a mighty way. Have your way and your will here. Oh God, by your Holy Spirit, pour out that old time Holy Ghost conviction upon us. Don't give us any peace. Lord, if there's anything in our life or our heart that's not right with you, don't give us any peace until we would get it out of the way. Until we would repent of it and get it out of the way. Because our relationship, our walk with you is the most important thing. It is more precious than life itself. So God, have your way and your will in our midst. And we'll give you all the glory for it. And Lord, let me ask one more thing of you. I need your help. Uh, I got nothing worth saying. Lest you give it to me. So I'm asking that you would clear my mind of everything but your message, your thoughts, your words. And that you'd place on my tongue the very things that you'd have me to say this morning. And Lord, I'm asking that you'd help me this morning, Lord, that it would just flow, God, from you through my spirit to each one that's here this morning to their spirit. Lord, that they'd understand that as I preach, that it's just like one, one dying man to another. So I share your words, your gospel. Help me here this morning. Anoint me from on high. Preach me one more time. And I'll be sure and give you all the glory because we love you. We worship you. We praise your holy name. We ask it all in the precious and holy name of Jesus. Amen. I'm going to start this morning with a little bit of a, not the point of my sermon, but a little bit of on my soapbox, I guess you could say, that I think it's important, fundamental for us as Christians to understand. And I want to point that out out of verse 12 before we move on with the message. Verse 12 says, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin. Remember that. Death by sin. And so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. Okay. Um, I want to take that and go back because it's referencing uh, the Garden of Eden. Genesis chapter 2 and 3, well, Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3. You see it playing out in, in chapter 4 and all through the rest of the scripture. I know, I feel like as I was thinking what the Lord would have me to preach this morning, I, I was thinking, you know, I feel like I'm a broken record. I feel like I've got certain places like Genesis that I keep coming back to. But understand the story of, the, of creation in Genesis is fundamental. It is absolutely fundamental to the, uh, to, to the understanding, right, uh, of the entirety of scriptures. It is fundamental 
to our understanding of, uh, of, of God, of Jesus and why he came, right, and what it was that he did and our redemption, right? You can't grasp that. You can't understand that unless you understand what was happening in Genesis. And so I feel like I say some of the same things over and over, but we need to know. And so anyways, here is something, and I'm just, this is what I guess you'd say on my soapbox I want to share with you for just a minute. I did not, I wasn't raised as a, a Christian. My parents, they, they took me to church a little bit off and on a few times, but I wasn't raised in church. I didn't get saved at a young age. I didn't get baptized until I was 27 years old before I got baptized. I was 27 before I uh, made any kind of public profession of faith in Christ. I was 27 before I ever even come to the altar the first time, right? I mean, God dealt with me. Now, God had convicted me lots of times over the years, but it wasn't until I was 27 uh, that, I, that I surrendered to God and give my life to Him. And so anyways, whenever I first got saved and God put a hunger in me to read the Word of God and I began to read the Word of God, one thing, one obstacle I had, I guess you would say, was trying to fit together what I had learned in school growing up, right, and what is being uh, taught to us in culture and in, in, you know, we see in TV and, and, and everything, right? I mean, goodness, even the cartoons that we show our children and the, and the ones that they watch, dinosaurs and all of that kind of stuff, you know, trying to reconcile all of that stuff I had learned about, you know, the age of the earth and the millions of years, actually the billions of years and evolution, trying to reconcile that with the first three chapters of Genesis. And I went through all kinds of different things, trying different stages, right, in, in my walk, trying to fit those things together and trying to make the days of creation, right, those six days of creation, symbolic and trying to, tr trying to make long periods of time between them and so on and so forth. But there is a fundamental problem with all of that. I'll say this up front, just in case somebody doesn't listen to every word I say, and I don't want you to be mixed up or confused or think I said something I didn't say. Evolution is not true. Period. It's not. It's just not. It's not scientifically proven. It's not a scientific fact. As a matter of fact, if you look at, if you look at the world of academia and, and the ones that are, that are talking about this and are in this field, especially the younger ones, right, uh, there is just becoming too many things that are coming up, evidences, right, that and I'm, not, I'm talking secular here. I'm not talking anything to do with religion. I'm talking this is by non-religious people that are making the theory of evidence evolution untenable, unable to maintain that theory. And I'll just say this, all right, this is just what Justin thinks for what it's worth. I'm not a, I'm not a prophet nor the son of a prophet, uh, but I will, I will say this, if the Lord tarries and, and, and we're around, and it may not be as long as I think, because in my mind I think 30 years, but it may not be near that long, it may be quicker than that. Our institutions of learning is going to be teaching either on the same level or as the accepted um, theory of creation or beginning of things, space aliens.
Life seeded by space aliens. Now for us, it's been around for a while. It seems absolutely nuts and crazy. You look at what all's going on. It is being seeded now, and there is more and more that is catching on to it. The first person in this realm that I heard throw that out as a possibility is Richard Dawkins. And so anyways, just mark my words, that's the theory of evolution is becoming untenable even to maintain as a realistic theory, and that's where it's going. But I want to talk to you about truth. I want to talk to you about the Word of God. I want to talk to you about Scripture. Here is the thing. In order for any kind of, just to put this evolution thing to rest, to put for evolution in every theory, you know, way that it might possibly go about, it requires death. Things die, and they evolve, and they die, and evolve, and they die, and there is millions and billions of years of that. What did the scripture that I just read to you say? By one man... Sin entered into the world, and because of sin or by sin, right? Death. Right? Let me just, let me read it real quick again. Verse 12. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin. Death by sin. Do do you understand what happened in creation, right? God created, right? We go through Genesis chapter 1, all six days of creation. We see the order of creation. We see God creating, right? And everything at the end of, of, of almost each day, he says it's good. At the end of the sixth day, he looks at everything and says it's very good, right? And then we get to chapter 2, and it's like you zoom in on day 6, and you see the creation in detail of, of the human race and of the animals uh, of the land that is created then, and right? And you go through that whole thing, and Adam is created. The Bible says that God formed him of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And then he goes through and all these animals are being created and Adam is naming them, right? And, but there is, not, there is not one that is suitable for a helpmate for Adam. Not one. Not a dog. Not a cat. Not anything. So a woman is created. Not, not out of, I, I love this as Matthew Henry is the first person I know of saying it. Not out of a bone, out of the foot, or out of the head. She's not to be under his foot or over his, or over his head, over him. But out of the bone, out of a rib, out of his side, signifying to be there and be equal. To stand by his side. Help me. Bible actually uses the word helpmeet, and Jennifer takes great offense with that, so I just say helpmate most of the time. Not really sure what it is about meat that she don't like, but she doesn't. So anyways, woman is made. The interesting thing about this whole story is they are placed, right? It starts out in, in chapter 2. Uh, there is God makes this garden, right? We know it is the Garden of Eden. Adam is placed in the garden to take care of the garden. The, the garden is a place of perfect, paradise. Adam is, Adam is placed there. Adam's job is to take care of it, right? And then the woman, right? So there is Adam and there's the woman. The only instructions, and this is before the creation of the woman, the only instructions that are given to Adam from God that we have at least recorded in the scripture is he talks about, he tells him that Adam may eat freely of everything in the garden 
except this one tree. Right? The tree of knowledge of good and evil that's there in the midst of the garden. He is not to eat of it. That's what God, we have it recorded. God telling Adam, don't eat of that one tree. Everything else, you're good. You go forward to Genesis chapter 3. You have the serpent approaching the woman and, of course, planting the seeds of doubt, the same ones that he does today whenever he begins. And he says, yea, hath God said. In other words, he's saying, is that really what God said? But what is interesting is what the woman says there. And this ties to my sermon this morning. The woman says... Not only are they not to eat of it, but they're not to touch it either. Well, that's not what God said earlier. Now, how that come about, I don't know. I told you, I think it was just a few weeks ago, I jokingly speculated that maybe Eve was similar to my wife, and I've, she's just on and on, you know, and about this, until finally I'm just like, look, don't even go close to it. Don't even touch the silly thing. Maybe that's how Adam was with it. I don't know. Maybe Eve added that on her own. I, maybe Adam added it. I, we don't know. But the point is, by the time that she's telling Satan, or the serpent, Satan, she says, we're not to even touch it. It's not what God said. That's what man said. God said, don't eat it. Man, mankind, human race, either Adam or Eve, one, adds to that, don't even touch it. Do you know what that's called? It's called a fence law. The Jews were really bad about doing that. They would make fence laws, okay? Um, and as a matter of fact, the group that was the biggest about doing that was the Pharisees. You fast forward to the New Testament and you start reading in the Gospels and you read about this group of Pharisees and they are a bunch of legalists and they, what they have done is they've added to the Word of God. They've added all kinds of commands. As a matter of fact, Jesus talks about how they, they've added burdens so heavy right on people that there's no way that they can carry. What they have done and what they continue to do is they create fence laws. Right? Think of what's a fence law, the idea of a fence to keep you from even getting close to whatever it is, right? If there is something, right? If we had some monument, statute, something precious or delicate or whatever that was out here in display, but we, you know, we did not want anybody to even get close enough to it to touch it, what would we do? We'd build a fence around it, right? We'd build some sort of fence around it to keep people from touching it. That's what a fence law does, right? It is a rule, a command, a law, whatever the case may be, right, that is constructed that men decide, okay, this is what you do, right? I'll give you an example from the Scriptures. If you look at Acts chapter 1 and verse 12, the last three words there is a Sabbath day journey. A Sabbath day's journey. What in the world is a Sabbath day's journey? Well, you can search the scripture and you will not find that phrase anywhere else. That, my friends, is a fence law that the Jews, specifically the Pharisees, had created. What they wanted to do was they wanted to keep the Sabbath holy. They didn't want anybody to break the Sabbath. They didn't want anybody to do anything that was considered work on the Sabbath. And in order to keep anybody from even getting close, in this case, and how far they travel, 
they created a law called a Sabbath day's journey. Now, I've not looked it up in a long time. I can't remember for sure. I think it was like three-quarters of a mile or something like that. But that was the farthest that you could travel. That's the closest you could get on the Sabbath day right before you hit that fence law that they had made to keep you from getting even close to breaking the commandment. Now, that may sound okay to you, but if you really think about it, it's not. And it's what's called legalism, and it's the opposite of grace, and it's what Paul is talking about here in this passage of Scripture. So let's, just, let's work our way through this real quick here this morning, okay? So what we have here is, of course, as I've, I have begin talking about was the effects of sin, right? And when sin come into the world, death, that's the thing that we talked about. But with that, disease, destruction, decay, everything, right, that's not perfect, right, is what come in or come about as a result of sin entering into the world. We literally live in a broken world because of sin. And so anyways, a world that was once perfect, right, God created perfect, that's why looks at it and says it was very good is now broken because of sin and that's why Jesus is coming back right he is coming back right and the Bible talks about a new heaven and a new earth right he is he is to make things right again and part of this will be getting rid of all sin and everyone who lives in sin so think about these things for just a minute Adam the first man was created perfect and unpolluted by sin. God gave him the freedom to choose, right? Put him in a literal paradise, a perfect place, and give him the freedom to choose between obedience and disobedience, between good and evil. And we all know the choice that was made. He chose evil over good. And in doing so, he doomed us to follow in his sinful steps. It's kind of in the same sense that a king or a president or the prime minister, right, acts on behalf of, of all the people in their kingdom or their nation or whatever, right? They act on behalf of the people and, and, and who then, the people then, pay the consequences uh, of his or her policies? If you think I'm wrong, what in the world do you think taxes is and all about? What do you think about it? Right, it, it is the president, in our case, right, that makes the decision to for our military to engage in some sort of conflict, right? I know that it's supposed to be Congress that actually declares war, but how long has it been since Congress has done that, right? It's been the president that's with executive authority making those actions, but all of the people pay the consequences, right? Adam chose his path for all of humanity and, and indeed all of creation. That includes you and me. And moreover, we have inherited from him his sinful nature, which it's, it's, it's a mutated, right? You, you can, you know, say mutated gene, but it's, it's much more than just that. But we've inherited that sinful nature so that we're on our own incapable, not able to choose only good and only obedience to God. Matter of fact, on our own, we'll, we'll choose evil and we'll choose disobedience. Now, I know what you might be thinking. Many have thought this over the years. That doesn't seem fair. 
It doesn't seem fair that Adam chose my fate. I'm doomed because he disobeyed. But now wait a second. When we sin, right? All of us have sinned. There's nobody here this morning that are sinless. We have all sinned. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And when we sin, and every time we sin, we show that we're not any better than Adam, and if we would have been in his place, we would have done just like he did. We would have chosen evil. We would have chosen disobedience. And so our sinful choices place us squarely with Adam in his rebellion against God's goodness. I mean, let's just face it. Let's just be honest for a minute this morning. We are utterly, as Romans 1.20 tells us, we are utterly without excuse. And just like Adam, we must come out of our hiding and admit, I ate. Right? You remember that, right? After they had sinned and their eyes was open and they realized they were naked, Adam and Eve somehow thought it was a great idea to make the world's first set of clothes out of fig leaves. And so they, so they made the, some clothes out of fig leaves to try to hide their nakedness. And when they heard the voice of God uh, walking in the garden, they hid from him. And God made them. It's not that God didn't know. It's not that God didn't know what had happened or where they were at. It was that God was forcing them to admit what they had done when he says, where are you? And so we must come out of our hiding just as Adam had to and Eve had to and admit, I ate. Like Adam, we've got to come out of our hiding and we've got to face our Creator. Because we'll never find grace hiding in the bushes. So as we look at our scriptures here this morning, in verse 15, I want to point out something to you. It says, but not as the offense, so also is the free gift. For if through the offense of one many be dead, much more the grace of God and the gift of grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ, has abounded unto men. That verse to me, tells us that because of what Adam did, many be dead. That was what the scripture says. But it also tells us that because of what Jesus did, the grace of God is abounded unto many. And then so verse 15, uh, in addition to that, tells us that the grace of God is a free gift. If you look at just this passage of Scripture that I read to you this morning, that word gift appears in there six times. So the grace of God is a free gift from God. But the question, I guess, has got to be asked, what is grace? Right? Grace is one of those words, grace and mercy both, are words that as Christians, we just throw them around. Without, I, I'm thoroughly convinced, without completely understanding what it is that they really mean without having a full understanding. Now, some do, many Christians do, but many Christians don't. And it's just like, it's almost like when you're cooking and you, you, you season it with a little bit of salt. It's got to make it better, right? You don't really know, you know, but you think, well, I'll put a little salt or a little of this seasoning, a little pepper or whatever on there, and we just throw it and make it a little bit better. We'll throw a little bit more on there. We do the same thing with those words, grace and mercy, right? We want it to sound good and look good, feel good, so we'll just sprinkle a little grace and mercy in our language and our speaking and our talk about it all over it or over someone or whatever, without completely understanding what grace 
and what mercy is. So, the definition of grace is unmerited or undeserved favor. It's, it's getting what you do not deserve. I always define it this way, and I use a comparison with mercy. Mercy is not getting what we do deserve. So in other words, for the Christian that is saved, look, we all deserve, we're guilty, and we deserve to be punished for our sins. We deserve to spend an eternity in hell. But God's mercy is us not getting what we do deserve, right? As a Christian, God has had mercy on us and we are not getting what we deserve, which is an eternity in the devil's hell. Now, grace, right? Mercy is not getting what you deserve. Grace is getting what you do not deserve, right? So the other piece of that, mercy is, is us not having to go to hell, not spend an eternity in hell. Grace is is us getting to spend an eternity with God in heaven. Grace is getting what we do not deserve. We do not deserve uh, to, to spend all of eternity in the presence of God. We don't deserve any of that. That's God's grace. Grace is a concept that I believe that we struggle with. And, and, and I think, right, it's all free. The scripture is making it clear. Paul is making it clear here that this is a free gift from God. But we struggle with this concept because our tendency is to default to the mindset of doing something to earn or deserve or to repay God for our salvation. We typically try to earn it. Or to show that we're worthy somehow of God's love and his salvation. And we usually try to do it right by keeping his laws, by being extra religious and, and so on and so forth. But listen to me. That's what this passage of scripture is all about. Law or rule keeping, right? Especially like these fence laws that I mentioned a while ago. In order to earn your salvation, that's called legalism. And legalism is the opposite of grace. Just as obedience and disobedience are opposites, evil and good are opposites, grace and legalism are opposites. Legalism is doing something in order to earn God's favor. It's getting, in other words, it's getting what you think you deserve. But the truth is, we, can't, we cannot earn God's favor, and we can never do enough to earn, to get what it is that God is freely offering us. So Paul, he had to deal with the problem of legalism a lot in some of the churches that he helped to start. As a matter of fact, there was a group of Jewish Christians, Jews that had become Christians, or claimed to have become Christians, that were going around to the churches and they were telling the Gentile Christians, now let me stop there for a second. First of all, they shouldn't be all these different groups of Christians. You ought to either be a Christian or not. But there's always been that problem. That's our nature and our tendency. They, they had the problem then. We still got it today. But anyways, so this group of Jewish Christians was going around telling the Gentile Christians that they had to be circumcised. 
before that they were actually saved, truly saved. In other words, they were saying that in order to in order to become a Christian, you had to become a Jew first. You had to go through the Jewish rites and be circumcised and all that. Then you could accept Christ and become a Christian. They're adding rules to it. There's legalism. Look, we do the same thing. We, we have the same problem today, to be honest with you. What they were saying in that day and time is they were, in other words, they were saying that Christ plus circumcision equaled salvation. Now, we're getting ready to do a baptism today, but there's a lot of groups of Christians or bunches of Christians that think that it takes faith plus baptism, right? So you put your faith in Christ, or you could say Christ plus baptism, then you're saved. But the truth is that's not the case at all. Look, when, when Colvin goes to get in that water here in a minute, he's already either saved or not saved. And getting in that water ain't going to make any difference except make him wet. Do you understand what I'm saying? Okay, now, let me, take, let me carry this on out though. Right? We've been commanded to be baptized. If we're saved, then we're to be baptized. And we're to follow the example that the Lord Jesus Christ set for us. And to be baptized is our public profession, right? It is a public profession to the whole world that I'm a Christian. So, do I think that if you're truly saved that you'll get baptized? Yeah, I do. I think that you'll have that desire, absolutely. Now, we can talk about exceptions to that. The thief on the cross is one of them. And, and there are still uh, exceptions today of things that happen. And ultimately, what your salvation is based on is where you have your faith placed. Is it in Christ or not? These other things, like baptism, for instance, is something that we'll do, uh, provided that we have the opportunity to do it, if we've truly gotten saved. So let's just real quick before I close out here. Let's look at this for just a minute. This legalism thing. Because it's a problem. Look, I spent part of my time as a Christian as a, as a legalist. Almost a modern day Pharisee. What legalism is, is legalism is working in our own power. Right? This is, it's accepting the fact that we are saved by grace and then trying to live the Christian life in our own strength. That's what legalism is, right? Because it's only by the power of the Holy Spirit that we can live a Christian life. That's the only way we can do it. But so often, right, we get saved and we trust God to save us, but then we try to live by our own power. And we'll, make, we'll try to set a, follow a set of rules and then we'll make more rules and add to them, right? To, before long you know it, you've made your own fence laws and they're doing these things and you're trying to live for God by your own power. And you'll fail, you'll fall on your face every time. So let me just quickly note here, that the holy life that we live, that's not how we are saved. It is the result of us being saved. The, the, the go forth and sin no more, to go out and live a life that pleases God and brings Him glory, that is not how you're saved. You live that life because you are saved. That's a fruit. That's an evidence. That's not a condition of salvation. We don't clean ourselves up. God's the one that does the cleaning. And so legalism is working according to our own rules. It involves, like I've mentioned, adding rules beyond 
what God had already defined as the basis of our relationship with him. We, we see this, as I mentioned earlier, with Adam and Eve. God told them not to eat of the tree of knowledge of good and e uh, evil. And Eve told the serpent, ye uh, shall not eat of it, neither shall you touch it. Somebody added that, and it wasn't God. Can I give you another example? And I've picked a couple here because they are very common. If God deals with you about smoking, for instance, then, in other words, if, as Christians, we like to say convicts us. I've, been, I've seen so many times where, where, where people who are struggling with that and God's dealing with them about it, they come to the altar and leave their pack of cigarettes on the altar. I've seen things like that many times. And listen to me, let me tell you. If God deals with you about smoking, for instance, then you'd better listen to him and lay off the smokes. But this is not your salvation. Nowhere, first of all, nowhere in the scripture do you see a command that says, Thou shalt not touch tobacco. It's not there. You'll not find it in the scripture anywhere. And even if it was there, it's not Christ plus abstaining from tobacco that equals salvation. It's your salvation is your faith in Christ alone. Let me just say this as a word of caution before we move on. Don't try to apply your personal convictions onto other people. Another quick example. Eating out on Sundays. I've seen people on both sides of that. I've been on both sides of that myself. God deals with you about it and you feel like that's what God wants you to do. Right? Bible says to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not to him it's sin. So if God deals with you about that and you earnestly, honestly feel like that's what you should do, then by all means, you better listen to God. But don't, it doesn't say that. Nowhere in the scripture does it say, thou shalt not eat out on Sunday. Doesn't. And we try to apply the Sabbath day laws to it. We're not living under laws. And Sunday ain't the Sabbath day. It's the Lord's day. It's the first day of the week. So if you want to try to keep the law under the Old Testament and not eat out on the Sabbath day, then you better stay home on Saturday. Because there ain't nowhere in the Scripture where God changed the Sabbath. It's the seventh day and always has been the seventh day. And that is the day that we call Saturday and always has been. Sunday is the first day. It is the Lord's day. You see, all this stuff, if you're not careful, is adding rules. And it's the exact same thing that the Pharisees did. Listen to me. Legalism is working to earn God's favor. Period. That's what it is. And this is the kind of thinking that by doing certain things, it's going to give us a higher rank with God. It'll cause us to be holier, to be better, to be closer to God. And some of these things might even be good things that God has told us to do. But we've got to realize that what God tells us to do is for our own good. Just like I mentioned, use the example about cigarettes. Listen, if he deals with you about laying off the smokes, there's probably a good reason why he's doing that, and you probably ought to do it. 
Maybe it's to make us stronger Christians. Maybe it's for your own health to prolong your life for a while. Maybe it's about being a witness to other people. I don't know. But if God deals with you about that, then you ought to do it. But you can't place that conviction off on someone else. And don't think that it makes God more pleased with us. Faith is the only way that we can please God. The scripture, that is so clear and so plain that the scripture plainly says that. In Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 6, it says, But without faith it is impossible to please him. Him there is God. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. So let me just say this. Legalism, it is absolutely destroyed with the gospel. The gospel is free, right? I've told you six times in this passage of scripture I read to you. It, it mentions that it is a gift. If it's a gift, it's free. God's favor is free. His salvation is free. His love is free. His mercy is free. His provision is free. It's all free, right? All we've got to do is accept it. All we've got to do is receive it. And it's all free because it's not based on you or me it's not based on us it's not based on what we do it is based on God and what his only begotten son Jesus Christ did on Calvary's cross and as Colvin read to us the scriptures this morning for the scripture reading it was God the father who initiated our salvation if you want to pinpoint that and read that later I won't now for the sake of time John 6.44 and John 6.65. That's where you'll find that it makes it clear that it is God that draws us. It is he, he is the one that initiates our salvation. We don't draw ourselves to Christ. God draws us. God does it. Not because we deserve it, because we don't deserve it. But because he loves us. It's up to us how we respond when God draws us. It is not us in anything, any work that we do that accomplishes our salvation. It is God the Son, Jesus Christ, who accomplished our salvation. Salvation is not about what we can do. Salvation is about what Christ has already done. The good news is that God became a man and lived a perfect life so that we might die on the cross for our or so that he might die on the cross for our sins and be raised from the dead in victory over sin so that all who believe in him will be saved. And when we add anything to it like something that we do then it's no longer grace it then becomes legalism. You see, grace is free. That means it costs us nothing. And so, not only does the gospel destroy legalism, but it is freeing also. Right? By God's grace, we are free from sin in this world by I, I got different people doing my altar call and they're missing my signals here this morning 
we no longer, what I'm trying to tell you, and been trying to tell you all morning, is we no longer have to live like this world, pursuing what the world pursues, loving what the world loves, indulging in what the world indulges in, because we are free. Free to live a life that honors God. Free to walk in the power of the Spirit. Free to live as God intended for us to live. And that is in Christ, not in sin. God is calling us to a life much better than anything this world has to offer. And He has made us free to live it. No longer in bondage to sin. You see, what I'm trying to tell you this morning is grace brings peace and it brings joy. Legalism, rule keeping and rule following, the opposite of grace, all it does is bring anxiety and bitterness. Listen to me. God has made you free. Free. Free from the bondage of sin in order to live for Him. So, we're going to close this thing out different this morning because we're getting ready to baptize Colvin. And so if he, he wants to come on, Tina, you want to help him, they want to come on over here. I'm going to tell you the altar is open. All right? You, you come on. You want to come and pray, you come and pray. Uh, you've got something to deal with, then you, you got business to take care of with God. You come take care of that business with God. You want somebody to pray with you? I've asked Devin and I've asked Jennifer uh, to pray with anybody that would like for somebody to pray with them. So you just come on. And then here in just a minute, we're going to have baptism. And let me just go ahead and mention something. When somebody's getting ready to get baptized, I like to talk to them beforehand. But you know what? It don't make any difference what I think or what I say. Spirit of God dealing with you, and, and today's your day. You're like old blind Bartimaeus and today's the day. Don't you miss, a, miss this opportunity. You need to get baptized. You just come right on and get baptized. And you might say, well, I ain't got no, I ain't got no dry clothes. That all, that's all right. It ain't the first time you ever went home wet. Glory to God. Hallelujah. At least you got a home in heaven. Hallelujah. Glory to God. So if you've got a need, if you've got a burden, you just come right on.